gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, please go to thedispatch.com. Please become a paying member. Uh, every time we get a new subscriber, uh, an angel gets its wings, and we flog our intern guy uh, one more time. So whether you want to be a force for good or a force for evil, there is an incentive structure to become a, uh, um, a paid member of the Dispatch community. And um, if I sound strange, uh, it's because it's it's early in the morning for for me for podcasting. We've we've mixed things up, and we're doing this. Uh, we're gonna try and do it before I write the G file in the mornings on Friday, rather than do it at the end of the day when I am a um, a spent husk of a human being after writing the G file and 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 indulging my bad habits, and also to expedite this process i mean i'm just breaking the fourth wall for you for you people uh to expedite this process we actually have now have people listening in um you can't see them obviously uh you can't hear them but we have uh, uh my ra nick pompello we have um ryan from the dish bash and we have guy in his refrigerator box in london and they're all um listening to this in part to take show notes um in part just to keep them from getting into mischief. Um, and that way, hopefully that will expedite things further. So if I sound different in part, it's because this is the first solo podcast I have ever done where, um, I feel like I'm actually talking to people in real time and it makes me, um, I can't tell if it makes me even more uncomfortable or less uncomfortable, but, uh, it's, um, it is what it is. So anyway, uh, where to begin? Um, since I haven't written the Friday G file yet, I don't have the, any of that stuff fresh in my mind um but i have been getting a lot of requests from people for me to talk about um matt gates and uh i'm perfectly happy to wait to withhold final judgment on the depths of his perfidy and crapulence um uh once the all these investigations are over uh that's fine i just want to make a, a broader and more generic point um, Matt Gates was an obviously flawed and uh, reprehensible human being, at least by measurements of of what we should expect from a congressman. Before any of this broke, and it could turn out to that end, it could turn out that he is in fact not guilty of sex trafficking with a seventeen-year-old. Um, I don't. I mean, that would make it worse if he was caught doing that. But um, let's not pretend that, like, as long as he skirts or skates by on that charge, that he has been exonerated and he's not worthy of criticism. He's just a scuzzy dude who has a truly corrupt and pernicious understanding of politics and what the role of uh, forget the constitution, what the role of a congressperson is and all that. You know, that's one of them, um, as you know, break out your bingo cards. That's one of the things, you know, that's one of the heuristics that Yuval Levin uses when he's making his argument about how institutions are supposed to form you rather than be a platform. And when people ask him, well, what are we supposed to do or how are we supposed to live up to this, this, you know, these notions, he says, well, you know, a good place to start 
is for leaders to uh, is for leaders to ask themselves, what's my role here? You know, what what um you know what am I how am I supposed to be behaving right here? What is my role here? And uh, I think it is not unreasonable to say that a congressman who asks that question in good faith of themselves would not also be going around um, showing nude pictures of the slatterns that he has bed um, on the floor of the House of Representatives. Now, I should be clear. He didn't sleep with these women on the floor of the House of Representatives, but he went around on the floor of the House of Representatives. And and I'm not putting it past him. If he could get away with that, he might have done that. I'm just saying that is not the allegation to date. But he has reportedly, according to various sources, he had the habit of busting out his phone and showing uh, pictures of the of the women, some of whom, uh, in good capitalist faction, had sex with him allegedly uh, as an exchange of goods and services for fiat currency. But regardless, um, a congressman who actually, you know, Daniel Webster would not go around saying, "Hey, check out these chicks I nailed," um, and showing them to other congressmen on his iPhone. I mean, I I I, I feel like that is not a I'm not going out on a limb rhetorically with that or as a matter of historical analysis, but I'm, I'm open to correction. Um, and this sort of gets to the sort of the, the larger point just this morning. When I say just this morning, mere minutes ago, all these uh, stories are busting out about uh, John Boehner's new book, which uh, looks like it'll actually be a pretty fun read. Politico has got an excerpt. Axio has, has as per usual, has a big summary of it. And, um, his basic point is this point I'm trying, I've been making about Gates is that Gates is, was part of the problem. Even when he was a star on Fox news, constantly on talk radio, constantly, um, you know, he could actually be, uh, a, a morally and sexually chaste person and he would still be, um, a, uh, corrupt carbuncle on the body politic because of his understanding of how politics actually works. You know, he, he thinks that, you know, as I keep mentioning in that vanity fair piece, you know, where he says point blank, um, that the way you govern, you know, the, that governing is defined by basically owning the libs and making headlines on social media and saying outrageous things on cable TV. And that is like literally the opposite of governing and um and apparently Boehner has this and there's a bit in the Boehner book where he says he talks about Michelle Bachman who is what well, I, I clear I always personally got along with her, Michelle Bachman Bachman I, you know we used to see her in the green room all the time and I was at some events where she was at and all that kind of stuff and I do think that and she's actually this is a good example of what I'm talking about in her personal life she was actually as far as I know a remarkably decent and upstanding woman. She had, she fostered an enormous number of kids. Um, I, you know, there may be some, something I don't know about, about her personal life or her husband's business dealings. I don't know that. But my point is, is like, even if Matt Gates could have be a, a morally decent person in his private life, which there is, let me be clear, very little evidence of, um, 
Michelle Bachman was a decent person in her in 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 her private life, but she, her conception of how politics works was deeply pernicious and problematic. And so this is from the uh, I think the Axios thing. Uh, Boehner calls the former Minnesota congresswoman who ran for president in 2012 uh, quote lunatic who embodied the ability of right wing media to make quote people who used to be fringe characters into powerful media stars, unquote. Boehner writes that Bachman wanted to be placed on the powerful House and Ways and Means Committee and that he turned her down. Uh, this is him writing. Her response to me was calm and matter of fact. Well, then I'll just have to go talk to Sean Hannity and everybody at Fox, she said, and Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, and everybody else on the radio and tell them that this is how John, John Boehner is treating the people who made it possible for Republicans to take back the House. Um, and then Boehner writes, I wasn't the one with the power, she was saying. I just thought I was. She had the power now. She was right, of course. That's Boehner saying that. And that's the problem, right? This is why I've changed my mind about C-SPAN having cameras in the House. Uh, this is why I want more smoke-filled rooms. This is why I want to empower gatekeepers and legitimizers. Go back and listen to the Elaine Kmark podcast about about how the parties should operate. I mean, she she's more friendly to primaries than I am, but um, at the very least, parties should be able to, um, their leadership should have the power. But when the when the party becomes basically just a brand name that is uh in is is a vassal and a slave to uh you know polling and focus groups and market research like a normal brand would be, then by being able to go outside of the chain of command and wave the bloody toga and 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 appeal to the 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 rabble of Rome, as it were, um, it turns uh, you know it turns people like Michelle Bachman and 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 Matt Gates into a, in effect Mark Antony and um, and people like Boehner into Brutus and Brutus is the guy who's got to flee Rome because the mob is on the side of the demagogues and this is what distorts so much of our our political um system is that it we may not have a plebiscitory uh system where we put every question up for a referenda um on the ballot it what we have is in fact worse because it is uh our, you know the party system is right now responsive to at least on the republican side right now and i think to a large extent the democrat side it's responsive to uh, just whoever is screaming the loudest as evidenced in, you know, social media and, uh, ratings on, on Fox. And that is a deeply twisted and pernicious thing. And, you know, Matt Gates largely r represents all that. The other thing that Matt Gates represents just to, since I'm on a tear and, and, and these poor rubes who are watching me right now can't stop me. Um, uh, I know, like I wrote, I wrote one G file where I did my, I told you so about Donald Trump after January 6th and it made a lot of people angry and it made a lot of people and a lot of people either unsubscribed or claimed to unsubscribe. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on individual people out there, although if they actually unsubscribed, they're probably not listening. But, um, I go back, you know, this is, this is, this is one of the uh, most talked about jokes or not jokes, but like funny things about being on the inside of 
uh, media organizations, going back at least for me with NR for 20 years, is the number of people who call or write saying um, they're canceling their subscriptions or asking to have their subscription canceled. My back of the envelope estimation is that maybe one in 15 of them actually subscribed in the first place. Uh, it is, uh, it, it, it's just one of these weird sort of faux, it's one of these weird things where people think they're really sticking it to you by saying they're canceling their subscription. Um, if they were actually canceling their subscription, they would like give you some information about how they're a subscriber or something like that, or they would actually go through the process themselves. Instead, it's just something that you yell, um, as if it, it it's going to have this powerful effect. Anyway, that neither here nor there. So I did this, I told you so stuff about Trump after January 6th, and I don't retract a bit of it. I've been trying to move away from that kind of thing because he's not president anymore and um, he's shrinking in the rear view mirror. Um, and, you know, uh, while I think that charges of me being obsessed with Trump and all that kind of stuff are wildly overblown by most of the people who hurl the charge at me, and often it's a sign of their own obsessions with Trump, you know, because I'll have one line about Trump and they say, yeah, I see you can't quit Trump. And it's like, well, no, you can't get over the fact that, you know, you tried to commit a coup and, um, tried to undermine an election and that I was right about Trump and you were wrong. And, and people, there is, there is, there is Trump derangement syndrome to go around for on all sides, but, um, we don't talk enough about pro Trump derangement syndrome where it makes people obsessed and hyper defensive about anything. So anyway, I don't retract any of the substance, but to make a more, a, a broader point for those of us who saw that Trump was always a con man and a grifter and didn't know what he was talking about and that he was, um, uh, play acting at, um, a lot of the things that he was doing. And, um, and he was a con man. And, uh, those of us who saw it, uh, we also saw that a lot of the people who, not all, but uh, certainly the people who were most attracted to him at, on the political stage were also lightweights, grifters, frauds, uh, lick spittles, uh, you know, and remoras. Those are the little fish that stick the sharks. Um, they were, you know, I mean, even, even Steve Bannon, who was never an A-team guy, um, considered most of the people who surrounded Trump to be the, you know, the island of misfit toys. And that's how it often works when, when demagogues and outsiders get into power is that the, est the establishment types or elites or people who know what they're talking about, they tend not to rally uh, to the person's side. And so that leaves a whole new class of people who normally couldn't get anywhere near presidential power or a presidential campaign as the go-to people. That's how, you know, Manafort made his way back into, you know, mainstream American politics and eventually jail, but that's a different story. Um, and that's why people like Stephen Miller and Jason Miller, um, and, uh, uh, and Matt Gates came to prominence is that because for whatever reason, they had so little self-respect or concern or integrity or, um, concern about, you know, democratic norms or political norms or, um, or, or the, the, the health of the Republican party or the health of conservatism or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and because Trump didn't care about that stuff either, he simply rewarded, um, you know, head past the sphincter sycophancy and ass kissing, 
um, uh, those kinds of people rose to the top. And the people who weren't into that stuff or who were making the more patriotic and more rational and defensible, you know, calculation that the government needed some capable people in there and that the, the and the president needed some reasonable people to keep them in line. Eventually, all of those people um, fell by the wayside. You know, the you know, whatever you think about John Kelly or Reince Priebus or, um, you know, Rex Tillerson or any of those people, um, they left in part because uh, they could not pay the price of unrelenting, unfettered, unqualified loyalty to, to Donald Trump. And so the replacements, that was the key criteria for them coming in. And um, anyway, my point is, is that it was obvious that a lot of these people were subpar people too. And, um, and I, again, I'm not saying that everybody in the Trump administration um, was a grifter and a con man. It's just that the quotient of or the proportion of people who were grifters and con people, we don't want to leave out the women folk, um, was so much higher in the Trump administration because that's the kind of people who Trump attracted. I mean, think about it this way. You know, there are a lot of smarter, better lawyers than Michael Cohen. But Michael Cohen was Trump's go-to guy for a reason. It's because he is basically, uh, you know, he's like the Jewish Fredo. Um, and, you know, so that explains people like Peter Navarro, who was a hack and a crackpot before he went in. Um, I recommend everybody go list, go read, you know, the stuff that Kevin Williamson wrote about Navarro. Navarro was full of crap um, from the get-go. And, uh, and he became, you know, people, you know, what's that thing about, you know, trying to get, uh, 10 pounds of crap in a five pound bag. Well, you know, after a couple of years of working for Trump, uh, it's like Navarro, you know, grew saddlebags to get more crap in them. And so that's why, you know, this week he has this bit about how, you know, Anthony Fauci created the, um, the COVID you know, the Wuhan virus was, was Anthony Fauci's doing. So he's going to call it the Fauci virus now. And, um, you know, to actually, if you listen to his explanation, it's, uh, you know, one of these kind of, you know, let's put, let's get a lot of red yarn and push pins and photos of Colonel Sanders and the Pope and, Kermit the frog and put them on a giant board and connect them with strings. So they seem connected. And then you realize that vests have no sleeves and voila, Anthony Fauci created the coronavirus. And, um, and these are the kind of people that, that Trump listened to. These are the kind of people who thought it was not entirely unreasonable that the president of the United States talk about people, uh, ingesting or injecting bleach and exposing their innards to ultraviolet light to kill the coronavirus. Um, and, you know, the only thing that's interesting to me about all of this is beyond being able to say, I told you so about this entire cast of buffoons, um, is the people who weren't buffoons, who became buffoons because of Trump. You know, I mean, um, I, at this point, I am agnostic about Sidney Powell. I mean, I do remember Back in the day, people telling me how it, what a serious and important and real person she was. And uh, 
maybe she once was, but if she once was, then she became what she is now, which is, you know, the, the dashboard, you know, the dashboard saint of tinfoil heads. Um, Rudy Giuliani, I know for a fact was a serious person for a long time. Um, but something happened to him that, you know, uh, he's, I mean, he's just a few fries shy of a happy meal now. And it's, it's very sad to me because he actually, you know, it's one of these things about like, if, you know, if Napoleon had been hit by a cannonball on his way into Russia, he would have been remembered as perhaps one of the greatest leaders in world history, not by me, but by a lot of people. Um, and, and, um, and he would actually still have some claim of being a liberator and all this kind of stuff, but things turned out differently. If Rudy Giuliani had been hit by a bus 10 years ago, uh, you know, or maybe right before his speech to CPAC, where he answered the phone from his wife, which I think was the beginning of the end, um, he would be still remembered as like America's mayor and this guy who handled nine 11 and saved New York and all that. Um, but that, sh- that ship has sailed on the guy. And so anyway, I'll close out this cause it's just in my head this morning and, um, and I'm trying to you know, power through this, but, um, one thing that really frustrates me is like everybody now running away from Matt Gates or running away from Sidney Powell and all these kinds of people. A lot of the, I mean, like, like I get why maybe normal Americans are just watching all this stuff through screens are, you know, maybe taken aback and surprised by some of this because they were told to believe that Sidney Powell and Matt Gates were serious people who should be taken seriously. Um, the, the, the priests and legitimizers of, um, right-wing media told them so, and they took them seriously. And, and my frustration is, is that now, you know, whenever these people finally get exposed as clowns, with the exception of Trump, whenever these people get exposed as clowns and grifters and liars, um, they just get memory hold. And there's this sort of attitude of, well, uh, you know, I was never, you know, it's, you know, I was, it's sort of the reverse of the Bill Murray thing and stripes where he says to his girlfriend, you know, one day Tito Puente is going to die and you're going to say, I love this stuff. I've been listening to him for years. It's sort of the antimatter universe version of that or the Spock with a goatee universe with this, where instead, um, uh, people are like, I never knew that guy. I never had anything to do with that guy. Um, or I never had anything to do with, you know, Sidney Powell, or I never thought you should take her seriously. And if you just go back and you look at what people were saying on these radio shows and TV shows, that's just a lie. And, um, there's like no, uh, there's no accountability for the repeated, you know, beclowning and stepping on a garden rake every time these people reveal their actual characters. Um, and the people who get held to account are the people who are prematurely right. Um, about all of these people. And, uh, it's, it's, I will admit it's frustrating. So anyway, let's move on from that. I'm going to keep the rest of my powder dry on Matt Gates to see how this whole thing unfolds. But, um, I, I will, um, return to the topic again, I am sure. So I had, um, a really interesting conversation I, with Shadi Hamid on the, the second remnant this week. Uh, he's a Brookings guy. He's an Atlantic writer. He's a, uh, practice, you know, practicing observant Muslim. And he's also a left wing guy. 
and um there was a lot there i wish i had a bit i had a better read on his views about democracy versus uh classical liberalism uh before we went in i might have like opened with that conversation uh, and instead we talked about the religion uh, the decline of religion stuff um so you know i i think so for listeners who didn't listen to it um or who did want to recap or whatever his basic position was that when forced to choose between you know at the testing point he's in favor he's a is a he considers himself a classical a non-woke person right so he's getting a lot of grief from the woke left because he's a uh he considers himself a liberal in the sort of classical liberal sense and just for the sake of clarity I, I if i use liberal in the next five minutes talking about that that's what i mean i mean sort of a david french liberal but of the left someone who believes in you know limited government due process um freedom of conscience uh free speech all of that kind of thing that kind of liberalism right not not progressivism if i mean progressivism i'll say progressivism and anyway so he says that when forced to choose at those moments of testing at those you know moments where you have to uh state your priors or your preferences um he opts on he he er, er, errs on the side of democracy over liberalism and I completely disagree with that. Um, and I think it's, uh, and, and anyway, I wish I had known um, ahead of time that that was his position because I think that would have been a really fruitful play, thing to argue about for an hour um, simply because, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it only came up in the last 15 minutes of, of the conversation or something. And so we got into it a bit. So anyway, it's been in my head a little bit. And here's my basic reasoning for why I think it's wrong. Um, you know, uh, my people used to have a saying that, you know, the, the best form of government is the good czar. And, um, and the problem is, and this is basically a play on the Will Rogers thing, who is not one of my people in the sense that I'm using it. But uh, the problem is, is that the worst form of government is the bad czar. And, um, but if you actually had a good czar, right, if you actually had a Solomonic king um, who was, as a matter of profound conviction and commitment and almost pious reverence, dedicated to preserving liberalism, uh, and again, rule of law, free markets, uh, limited government, freedom of conscience, free speech, due process, all of those kinds of things. You could live your life pretty much free of all forms of tyranny. Um, you know, you may think the inability to vote is a form of tyranny, and it is, but it's a form of tyranny because almost precisely because um without a vote, without the ability to vote, you get bad czars. And, but you would much rather, let me put it this way, you would much rather live in a society where, um, where liberalism in the sense that I'm talking about was very, very, very strong and determinative of important questions of politics and public policy than to live in a society where democracy ruled everything. 
Um, and I say this whether you're on the left or the right. As I said to Shaddy, uh, the, the, you know, pure democracy is just simply the proposition that, that 51% of the people get to pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people. Um, there is nothing inherently noble or righteous or factually correct about an opinion just because it gets a simple majority. And, um, uh, you know, this is one of the, this is one of my core problems with populism from the beginning is that, you know, there's this math to politics that says you can call one person an idiot. You can call two people an idiot. Um, but you're not allowed to call a million people an idiot because a million people are a constituency and, um, you know, large numbers of people can be wrong. And I would rather live in a society that had the bill of rights, which is anti, when I actually say it's anti-democratic, it is, uh, non-democratic to say the least. And maybe even you could argue anti-democratic, you know, the bill of rights says that it doesn't matter for the most part, right? Um, if the overwhelming majority of Americans, um, want you to be censored or have your right to religious freedom revoked or have your property taken away. Um, it doesn't matter because the bill of rights protects individual liberties against the, I don't even want to call it the mob. It could be just the majority. And, you know, I mean, the majority doesn't need to be a mob. It can be a mob. But the majority can just be people who are wrong and they can be well-intentioned and decent people and all that. But I would much rather live in a society that enforced the bill of rights and things like it than live in a society that was, um, that whenever there was a testing point between liberalism and democracy went with democracy, you know, it should be really hard to change the constitution. It should be really hard to take for the state to take people's property or, um, uh, put them in jail without a trial. Um, you know, just the other day, that silly woman, Chelsea Handler tweeted, you know, what a shame or how outrageous or something it is that we have to go through the process of having a trial for Derek Chauvin because, um, we all know he's guilty from seeing the video. That's a natural human response. That is how human beings normally think. You know, that is the kind of tribal understanding of morality that I talk about when people watch movies. We're like, why do we have to watch this whole trial? We know the guy is guilty. Let's just skip to the next scene where he's punished. Um, that's not how an actual society should work. And um, I don't want it to be easy for democratic majorities to overturn those kinds of things. And um, I find it fascinating that there are people of goodwill and good faith who are smart. I mean, Shaddy's clearly a smart guy. went to Oxford and all that kind of stuff who as an abstract matter, see it differently. Now, I mean, again, he was a reasonable guy and I'm sure you would have intelligent responses to my point, but all I'm saying is, is that, you know, I would much rather go with, um, a robust regime of liberalism than a robust regime of democracy. And I think the most obvious illustration of that in recent American history is that in most of the states of the South, not all of them, but most of them, if you put Jim Crow up for a vote, 
at least at some stages of Jim Crow, the majority would um, vote to keep it. And I think that's true in, in some states of the South. There were some states where slaves outnumbered the white population. Uh, I think South Carolina was one, at least for a period of time. So maybe it would be different there. But certainly during slavery, uh, if you put it up for a vote in this and most of the Confederacy, uh, slavery would be democratically anointed as correct. And I think that is, and I, by no means do I think Shadi agrees that, that slavery is good. But my point is, is that if we're going to have this choice at the margins, at the, at the bubble or at the testing point, um, I have a very hard time seeing why democracy should ever beat, um, liberalism. And, um, um, and the only times I shouldn't say that there are times when it can beat liberalism, but that's how the way our system is sort of set up is that, or at least the way it was intended to be set up is that the times where let's just say con the constitution is about liberalism, right? And I understand that's a, a grotesque generalization, but the point is, is that when the, the reason why they made it hard to change the constitution, the reason why, um, they made the Senate, the cooling saucer, um, of the, of the legislature is that the founding fathers were very scared of, uh, tyrannical majorities. They were very scared of, of, of political passions overtaking the public and in a, in a rush to judgment and the heat of passion, uh, making bad laws and doing bad things. And so the idea wasn't to say that democracy won't win in the end, but it was to say, maybe we should slow things down. And if you make the requirements for constitutional amendment difficult, so it requires two thirds of this or, you know, three fifths of that, I can't remember, you know, either of the states or of legislatures or of the Senate, whatever. If you make it a process that requires you actually calming down, thinking through your position and talking to the people who disagree with you and persuading them, you eventually get a consensus about what the majority really want, really think is worth doing and then locking it in. And that's how it, to me, it seems like if, if democracy is going to trump liberalism, it needs to be after a long and deliberative process. Uh, the shorter the process in a contest between democracy and liberalism, the, the greater and almost the certainty, uh, greater chances and almost the certainty that democracy is going to be wrong and liberalism is going to be right. And that the rights of minorities or individuals are going to be taken away because the majority has got some crazy notions in its head in a specific moment in time. So. Um, I wrote this other column, which, uh, that was, uh, vexatious to some. And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting whenever I talk about bipartisanship or partisanship, I get so much mail from people who assume that I am being hypocritical because I have ownership of what the Republican party did or what the democratic party did. Um, or because I took a conservative position that lined up with the Republican party that for it means I'm hypocritical. If I criticize, 
you know, partisanship that I disagree with or whatever. And it can get very frustrating. And I tend not to dwell on a lot of that kind of feedback. But I made this basic argument. Um, actually, I wrote, I, I guess I wrote about bipartisanship in two columns this week. So in the first one, I made this argument that I talked about a little bit with uh, uh, Brother Chris Steyerwalt on the first remnant this week about how there is this weird paradox in American politics that says where we have bases of both parties that are really, really, really eager to destroy the other party, right? This is the whole, it's not good enough that cats succeed, uh, dogs must also fail. I'm sorry, it's not good enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail, as if it you know it works both ways, I guess. But you know, I want to be accurate to it. Um, and you know, all the negative partisanship out there, and 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 the paradox is, is that despite these feelings, the the impulse from the bases of both parties is to swing for the fences on policy stuff. Um, rather than use politics to actually hurt the other party. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they don't try, you know, I mean, er, there's not a day that goes by where Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer don't call Republicans racist, or I saw this morning in the pocket of big oil because they're against this infrastructure boondoggle. Um, and it is a boondoggle. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they try to use politics to, to hurt the other party, but the, the most effective form of politics that, you know, Biden could, could, could cripple the GOP in a lot of ways if he actually lived up to his promise of being bipartisan. If he actually acted in accordance with the stuff that he said, um, it would create huge problems, certainly for the sort of you know, the Matt Gates and Michelle Bachman types and the, the media people who live off of them. But um, it would also uh, create just general messaging problems for the GOP. You know, right now, uh, lots of Republicans are saying, you know, are basically using Biden's position as if it's their own position. They're saying, you're the one who said, um, you believe in bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle. You're the one who's betraying what you said, right? So it's not like the official position of the Republican Party is Biden should be bipartisan. We should work with Biden. The official position of the Republican Party is Biden's a hypocrite for not trying to be bipartisan. This is a pristine example of this thing I talk about all the time about how we live in a society where we tend to weaponize other people's values and principles rather than actually try to up, live up to our principles ourselves. And, you know, it's like why Mike Pence would always say how disappointed he was when people said mean things about Donald Trump. But the second Donald Trump said something horrible about, you know, somebody else, you know, Joe Scarborough is a murderer, for example. Um, you know, Pence would fall back on, well, you know, the president was elected to be a disruptor. You know, he's not a conventional politician. It's this tendency to weaponize other people's uh, uh, values while actually upholding none of your own. And, um, and I'm not saying that everybody who's doing this to Biden has no values. Like I mean, Mitt Romney, who I think is an incredibly decent and honorable dude, um, he's dinging Biden all the time for not being bipartisan. But Romney, to his credit, at least wants to be bipartisan. You know, I mean, he's willing to, to deal, but Biden's not meeting him even a third of the way. And anyway, 
my point is, is that if Biden actually worked with Romney and eight or nine other Republicans, it would incite such turmoil on the right because it would then launch this great, you know, rhinos versus Trucons civil war. It would move beyond the question of are you pro or anti-Trump to, you know, are you willing to get things done versus not get things done? And don't get me wrong. I think some of the things that they might get done with Biden would be things I would oppose. But my point is, is that if Biden actually was bipartisan in a meaningful way that exacted a price for him politically with his own base, it would cause far more disruption among Republicans than it would among Democrats because Biden's the president of the United States. He still has the power. So eventually the base is going to fall in line because, uh, you know, at least for now, because he's the guy who can get things done for them. Meanwhile, the Republicans being entirely out of power, all they have is the, is the, the need to argue and, and bitch and complain about things. And so, a, you know, this is, this is one of the things that, you know, Bill Clinton was actually genius about with the triangulation stuff. You take some of the other side's issues and make them your own. And it creates total cognitive dissonance and hysteria among your enemies because they don't know how to message against you. Um, one of the reasons why uh, Democrats went nuts about George W. Bush, other than the Florida recount stuff, and then later the Iraq war was that he was trying to eat off of the Democrats plate when it came to things like education. Um, and it, it frustrates people who want this black and white view of the political opposition. And, and moreover, like if Biden did get continuously attacked by his base, that would make Biden and the Democrats all the more attractive to moderates, to uh, centrists, to independents, to these uh, crossover voters who voted in 2020 for Biden, even though they're still, you know, ideologically more Republican than Democrat. That would be, you know, like, a, you know, a sister soldier moment on steroids for Biden. It would, it would lend more credibility to his. Um, claims of being bipartisan and make it all the more difficult for Republicans to figure out the messaging. Because, I mean, it was like last night I saw in special report, they ran this clip from uh, AOC attacking the, the paltry, you know, meagerness of this $2 trillion infrastructure bill. And uh, my friend Chuck Lane was like, I am sure Biden is delighted by this because it helps him make it seem, it, may, it helps make his you know, when she's asking for $10 trillion in spending and Biden's asking for $2 trillion in spending and everyone is being told that AOC is the true socialist and the future leader of the Democratic Party and, you know, the one who's going to nationalize uh, the, the, the banks and take over the radio stations or whatever, you know, Sean Hannity is saying today. Um, and then she attacks Biden for being too moderate. That's good for Biden. And bad for the right in terms of its messaging. And yet the problem is, is that nobody is interested in doing this because they've decided that because it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle, it's why every election is the most important election, we're told, in American history about how um, it's why the guys at Claremont are going deeper and deeper into this catastrophizing um, apocalyptic mode about how you know the end of America is here. Um, it's why they talk about, you know, that, that if, you know, why, why the Trumpists said, if we lose this election, America is over 
Um, it's why, you know, they said it in 2016 too. It's why, and it's why, you know, Democrats said it as well. I mean, there is this, this sense that, that if we're not in power, everything, you know, will fall off the edge of the world. And, uh, and the thing that perpetuates that cycle is that every time they get in power, because they think there's no time to waste, they try to swing for the fences on every public policy issue they can get away with, partly to appease the base, partly because they think there's so little time left before, you know, uh, the pale rider shows up or something that, uh, they overreach and every president, you know, has basically overreached in one way or another, um, for the last three presidencies, uh, four presidencies. And the overreach invites the correction of the other side coming in and saying, look, these guys have gone too far. If, if Biden didn't go too far and instead kind of hugged the center, it would be good for America. It would be from my perspective, uh, good for conservatism because it would move the center of gravity rightward. Donald Trump moved the center of gravity in this country leftward. Um, and, uh, and it would just throw the GOP into utter chaos in much the same way that if Donald Trump had been, uh, an open with, uh, infrastructure and reaching out to Democrats, which frankly, I will admit is what I thought he was going to do. Um, until we discovered just how unbelievably moth-like he was to, um, you know, fame and praise from his fans that it forced him to go much more of a base presidency kind of thing. But if Trump had, uh, opened up, um, with less blood and soil stuff in his inaugural and instead, you know, worked out this deal with Chuck Schumer, like the two old New Yorkers that they are, um, um, it would have created profound problems for the Democrats. And, um, um, and you could have seen this cycle broken and, and Obama had the same chance with the stimulus, but no one takes this advice. No one thinks that this is the way to go. And instead they try to get, it's sort of like that, those game shows where you're in the supermarket and you only have a minute to sweep out the shelves, um, and get to the finish line. And so that's what they're doing with all of the spending, um, all of this sort of wish list omnibus stuff is they're racing because they think they're going to lose power any second. So they might as well do it right now. And the problem is, is that that behavior is the thing that most guarantees they'll lose power and you get this cycle over and over again. And the second thing I wrote about bipartisanship since I, I mentioned it was, uh, I, it's my column today, my syndicated column today about, um, how we basically have two big spending parties. Um, now there are, there are some differences, right? The, the GOP, if you, if you look at it in terms of deficits and debt, both parties are incredibly guilty and, um, anyone, anyone without anyone in either party with a very few exceptions who talks about fiscal discipline and restraint, um, is a hypocrite or at least a flip-flopper and inconsistent or making partisan arguments only when the other side is in power doing the same thing they did when they were in power. But, um, all that said, there are some subtle differences. The Republicans drove up debt more by cutting taxes and then not getting the revenues to make up for it. Um, that said, I mean, the numbers, as I understand them is that, you know, total spending went up 
something like between 800 billion net total spending went up like 800 billion to um a trillion dollars before the pandemic hit and then of course um it was uh you know er, er, I used to say that that George W. Bush spent money like a pimp with a week to live. Um, this was like that HBO special about the pimp convention where everyone's just throwing Benjamins out their window. Um, and, uh, oh, by the way, I, I've been meaning to mention this to somebody. Uh, a little while ago, Bill Maher, who I think is a horrible person, um, and I've been boycotting his show for a long time, uh, he went after somebody for ripping off one of his jokes or being a plagiarist or something like that. And I can't remember it was, and it's fine, whatever the criticism was, but uh, Kevin Williamson was the one who pointed this out. Bill Maher, I don't know, about 10 years ago, ripped off my joke about a pimp with a week to live spending like a pimp with a week to live. Um, which at least according to Nexus back then I was the only person or at least the first person to ever use the line. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we now have this situation where the, um, since neither party can speak credibly about debt and deficits and overspending um, without being called hypocritical or being called a partisan opportunist, we're left with a situation where um, it is a de facto bipartisan consensus to not really care about this stuff. They may not, it may not sound like that when you see people on TV talking about it and all the rest, but that is, that is the, certainly the takeaway that the public takes from this, which is that, Neither party is actually serious about these issues. They're only, they only raise these issues when the other party increases the deficit or spends too much. Um, when it's their party in power, uh, you know, they'll say the tax, the tax cuts will pay for themselves or this is spending that will have multipliers or whatever. Um, and they only raise concerns about debt and deficits and spending as a way to uh, complain about what the other side is doing. They don't actually care about these issues as the issues themselves. And, and so you get to this point, and this is something that, you know, Shadi and I talked about on that podcast was this is very much like what they have in Europe. There's a broad consensus about, uh, having a big generous welfare state and, and either socialized or quasi socialized medicine. Um, and so that means all that's left to argue about are culture issues. And uh, some cultural issues are absolutely legitimate issues like immigration. In my column is the one I bring up. Abortion is a legitimate issue. Um, we can come up with, a, I could come up with a long list of legitimate cultural questions and cultural issues that deserve to be debated in a democracy, in a liberal democracy. Um, that's not my point. There's no way you're going to get me to think that what Kevin McCarthy did reading Green Eggs and Ham, which was not one of the books that was canceled, um, was the right response to a $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill that had very little to do, not, not I should say very little, but it had much less to do with the pandemic than the press releases suggested. Um, and, and so you get this, the point is, is you get the situation where either by, by agreement or by uh, mutually assured hypocrisy on both sides, neither the, the complaints about debt and deficit either fall on deaf ears or are never uttered in the first place. Um, 
parties still have to differentiate themselves from each other. And, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you have to do something to explain why Coke is different than Pepsi. You can't go around saying, you know, there's not a dime's worth of difference between us and the other guys. You can't go around saying, well, you know, in blind taste tests, lots of people think Pepsi is Coke and vice versa. I'm not saying that's actually true. We all know that Coke is better than Pepsi. Um, though I would say that diet Pepsi is better than diet Coke, but Coke zero is better than all the other diet colas. Um, on this, there can be no debate regardless. The, 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 you have to differentiate your brand somehow. And so what you do is you emphasize the cultural stuff. You claim that the other side wants to, um, you know, uh, wipe out your, your, all that you hold dear in life. Um, um, and that's the real reason why you need to vote for us and not the other side. And again, I think some cultural culture war stuff is totally legitimate, but when you, give up having a serious argument about philosophy of government when you give up give up having a real argument about the role of government in the economy um uh either because you've just discredited yourself or because you've truly given up um it just makes the culture war stuff that much more important that much more necessary and so like in europe uh yeah they have they have arguments about economic stuff but it's mostly like whether or not we should lift these union requirements or whether or not we should, uh, uh, increase subsidies and protections for unions or what, or whether we should have civil service reform or not have civil service reform or whether we should have more subsidies for this sector or less subsidies for the sector. The, the premise that the government should be involved in all these things was settled. And so now it's just who gets which slice, how big a slice of the pie. And, um, and sometimes those are the most important issues in Europe, but sometimes it's like nationalism versus Europeanism or, you know, uh, European identity or church and state stuff, even though, you know, religious, uh, you know, uh, affiliation or devotion is declining, has been declining for a long time in Europe. Um, it becomes these culture war issues. And, um, and that's a very depressing thing to me. In part because if, to bring this full circle, um, if that is where the ratings are, if that is where the votes are, is that, if that is where each party thinks it has a comparative advantage in this highly polarized climate, you're going to get to this point where the people who state, or I think we've already reached that point, the people who state the conflict in the most extreme and catastrophized terms are going to get the most attention and that rewards, you know, uh, you know, jabbering bandersnatches like Matt Gates, um, and, 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 and hucksters like Peter Navarro, um, and, you know, the, my pillow guy and, and, and all, and, and to be fair, uh, all of these people yammering on about white supremacy, um, or, you know, trying to contrive this idea that, you know, that Asians are um, this profoundly persecuted minority because of white supremacy. I'm not saying that there aren't anti-Asian hate crimes and they're bad and all that, and they're despicable. Um, but this, you know, this constant desire to form these 
you know, impermeable narratives of victimization at the hands of Whitey um, is, a, is just as much a good example of what I'm talking about as whatever ass clownery Matt Gates is doing. And in fact, a lot of that stuff from the left is far worse because it gets validation from universities, from intellectuals, from the mainstream media um, in ways that, you know, Gatesian buffoonery doesn't. Um, and so there is a real asymmetry there, but the larger problem is the same is that, um, if, if, if you've taken off the table for one reason or another arguments about the role and scope of government, or you've taken off the table concerns about overspending and inflation. I mean, we live right now, we're living in a moment where we could be right or we could be wrong, but we're living in a moment where everyone is basically saying inflation doesn't matter or don't worry about inflation. I'm going to take my friends at their word that they're right, that, and I certainly believe they're doing it in good faith when they say we shouldn't be worried about inflation right now, but that's the grand experiment. And even if we don't get inflation, it worries me greatly to live in a society where economic policymakers think that inflation isn't a problem anymore, because eventually with that mindset, you get inflation. And I don't know when it's going to come or, or, you know, if we're going to pull back before it does, but if it comes, uh, get ready for populist politics to get much, much uglier. Um, anyway, I can't remember if I was supposed to add another point to what I was building up to or not, but, uh, there you have it. So, uh, house cleaning stuff to do or housekeeping stuff to do. Um, I got a bunch of stuff going on on the domestic front that I can't really talk about, but, um, it may uh, it may mess up the schedule in the weeks to come, but we do have, at least on paper, some great guests coming. Um, I'll let you guys know about them soon. And um, please, again, subscribe to The Dispatch if you haven't already. Uh, it would mean the world to me. And um, I will actually take one of the clamps off of whatever part of flesh listeners ask from Guy, our intern, um, if we hit, um, you know, I don't know, let's say uh, 2,000 more subscribers in the next month. Um, uh, that would be great. So anyway, thanks to these poor saps who've had to listen to me for the last, I don't know how long, hour or so. And thank you all for listening. Uh, please let me know if you think doing this in the morning with my Greek chorus is better or worse or the same. Um, I, I, I look at a lot try to look at all the feedback um even if i don't respond to it uh that doesn't mean i haven't seen it i do care um as george hw bush might say message i care um and uh i'll see you next time <laughs>